You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. Gosh, you know, I read so much. I get sucked into books about just about every subject. And then I came across this book, and I think it was Therese Carpenter that mentioned this book. And the name of it is Commander to Crown, Lessons Learned as a Navy Naval Commander and Beauty Queen. Right there, I'm hooked because it's military and I'm assuming something about pageants. And we have pageants in, in our family history with my sisters. And so I started reading this book and it was just absolutely amazing. And I finally reached out to Dr. Corinne Devon. She says I can call her Corinne. I, I don't know if I should call her Dr. or Corinne or Miss Texas or Miss United States or Miss earth or miss galaxy i could call her a lot of different things i could call her commander but she said i I can call her corinne i am so excited to have dr corinne devon on my podcast today doctor it's great to see you how are you today i am doing wonderful mike thank you so much for having me it's a beautiful day in the future in japan since i know i'm on the other side of the world um calling you from my host country so how are you? I'm great. Thank you for asking. And let me start out right away. Thank you so much for your service to our country and what you do. And, and you go into great detail about the importance of that to you and your family, by the way. And so thank you so much for what you're doing. You're just really special. And my hat's off to you. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, serving in the military goes back to the Revolutionary War. And if you told my eight-year-old self I'd be signing up and doing the same thing, I'd probably would tell you you're crazy, but you know what? I, I feel really grateful. I love what I get to do. And I have a great group of patients who uh, catch my bullet. So what can I say? I'm very blessed in multiple ways. So let me ask you this question. And I'm sure you have the answer to this. If I spent the next 30 days searching for a beauty queen participant and beauty queen winner of pageants, a naval commander, a board certified orthodontist, all rolled into one. Am I going to find anybody other than you? Uh, you're going to find some naval officers who participated in pageants. Uh, you will find some orthodontists, I believe some orthodontic residents or general dentists I know who've done pageants. But all three, no, I haven't met any yet. But if you do find them, let me know, because I would love, love <laughs> to, to meet them. Because my dream one day was to open up a practice with other orthodontists who were pageant winners, and I have not found them yet. Um, orthodontics is a very male-driven profession, but it is, they are seeing more females enter it. That was one of the things I talked about at the key, as a keynote speaker for the American Association of Orthodontists at the midwinter session. And uh, I, I, to me, it, it is definitely very, very contradicting roles. But if you basically unpack it and really see the commonalities among them, you will see, and, and, and I share this in my book, how each can benefit the other. And I think that's really beautiful when you can have passions and things that make you excited, that give you that zeal for life outside the office, because you in turn learn those skills that make you excited doing the day-to-day -day job um, where you spend most of your time more than anywhere else. Thanks for the detail. And we're going to eventually talk about male dominated industry, which you just referred to when I 
take us to the STEM discussion, because to your point, th- that group of professions that typically are STEM have historically been very, very heavily male dominated. And so you're, you know, a trailblazer in, in a lot of different ways. And so let's, let's start with your family and the history and the, the naval history in your family and then your father's and your mother, because they, they both are attached to the industry you're part of. Tell us a little bit about your family. So my dad was uh, went to dental school at Georgetown. He graduated. And unfortunately, that dental school is no longer part of Georgetown anymore. They saw their medical school. And after he graduated and he was looking to just figure out, get out of Connecticut, get out of the East Coast, he joined the military. And in, when he was stationed in Long Beach, that's where he met my mom. So my dad is originally from New England. My mom is from Southern California, and she was a, uh, a we call them a GS government employee or a civil servant at the time. And she was a dental assistant, and that's how she met my dad. And she told me that she never dreamed of leaving California. She saw her whole life there. And as ironic it was, be my dad swept her off her feet. I was born in the Philippines on a naval base. A few years later, we were back in California. My brother was born in Huntington Beach. And we've lived, gosh, so many places, Hawaii, where my dad went to Operation Desert Storm. We moved back and it was funny. The military always told my family we would never move back to California, but somehow every other tour, we were back in California. (laughs) And right before I started high school, my dad hit his 20 years in the Navy. And for your listeners who are not familiar with the Navy, when you hit 20 years in the Navy, you actually get a pension, which means you get 50% of your basic pay for the rest of your life which is something very rare to find in companies in present day um, employment. And so my father had his license in multiple states, but he said, you know what? I want to leave California. It's too saturated here, too much high in taxes. Convinced my mom to say Lake Tahoe will be your ocean. And we moved to Reno, Nevada, right before he started high school. And that's where he took over another office and really built up his private practice. And they've been there ever since. My dad has sold that office, but he still works. He loves um, he's worked for the VA. He uh, helped fills in for various people. He still writes. And I would attribute to my father being a Renaissance man of just different skills and was really have implanted that into me and my brother of just, you know, this lifelong learning and being excited. And, and I think that really what keeps you young is that you're able to do those different things. So he's learning French and he's learning all different things, as well as my mom, who basically was a silent partner and ran the more administrative task of the office outside of um, my father who was doing the dentistry. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's, then somehow I, I got roped in. It just, it wasn't planned that way, but it, it happened right when, right when I was in college. So yeah. We have a, a common connection there. My sister and her husband uh, live in Reno. And oh, no way. she is, this is not the right term, but she's on the school board, which is countywide school board compared to most school boards, which are usually school districts or, or a city. And she's been on that now, I think, for two years. Yeah. So. So what a small world. <laughs> it, it's a very small world. It's a beautiful part of the country, especially when you get up to Tahoe. I mean, that's just absolutely gorgeous. So, so you end up eventually in the Navy yourself? Yes, sir. How did that come about? Gosh, so when I was in dental school, and dental school for your listeners is incredibly expensive. I mean, 
I would tell people nowadays, my education is well close to a million dollars. I was struggling figuring out how am I going to pay for it? I, you know, my parents helped me pay for college and they were gracious to help me find a place to live and, and learn how to be a property manager. But, you know, when I was in dental school, I was always so impressed with my faculty and with my dad who weren't afraid to push the envelope. They were, there was nothing that seemed to come to them that didn't phase them. You know, maybe they had to think about it and, and, and ponder, but it just didn't seem to ruffle their feathers. And the one commonality among all of these people is that they serve the military. And I thought, gosh, you know, there's no way I'm going to pay off all these student loans in four years. So why don't I serve four years in the military? I have a job when I graduate, get a little, see a little bit of the world. And I applied for the health profession scholarship program and got it. So three of my four years of dental school were paid for. And when I, when I was in dental school, I got to do officer. It's now called officer development school. It's called officer indoctrination school, six week program up in Newport, Rhode Island, where you learn how to be, learn the military etiquette and bearing and what's required of you as a naval officer. But we are considered, we're not in the line committee. We're considered a supply, um, a staff community, excuse me. And that's where you have the nurses, the doctors, the lawyers, the dentists, the uh, nuclear physicians, the people who are kind of, you know, have the military hired for a specific job. And so when I graduated in May 12, 2007, that is when I officially entered. That's my oath of office. And from that point on, I have been serving. And 15 years later, somehow I just keep staying in because I, I love what I do. <laughs> Along the way, however, and this is in the book. And by the way, my goal as, as listeners of my podcast know I don't go into a lot of detail about books because I want you to go and buy them. And there's a lot of great information in this book. Along the way, and by the way, the name of the book again is Commander to Crown, Lessons Learned as a Naval Commander and Beauty Queen. Along the way, you had a dream stealer that somewhat confronted you. And I'm so grateful that you ignored her. You had a career counselor that said you might be better off focusing on getting married. When that happened to you, what was your first reaction when you heard that? I I was stunned. I I couldn't believe this. I'm like, this is 2005. I'm in college. I'm at a place that... I felt many people came to, to, you know, just open up job opportunities, open up their ability to explore their future. And to be told that was just so disheartening. Looking back though, I, I'm not surprised she did say it because my grades weren't that great. They were subpar. A lot of people at my school came from two private Catholic schools, one in all boys, one in all girls schools. So that was, that was a common thing to see. I, on the other hand, did not, I didn't go to a private high school. I came from Reno, Nevada and was there on scholarships. So I can see why that counselor said what she said, but walking back to my dorm, I just thought, you know, very often, sometimes people who can't do teach. I know that sounds very harsh because I do have a lot of great teachers, but I learned that sometimes when people don't make their own goals, they will project it onto other people. And I thought, you know what? I don't need to let that person to dictate my life, to tell me my limits, to tell me what's possible. I can do that. I can change my own trajectory. And I, and I encourage people to, to think about them, their mindset. You know, there is, I always, tr I always tell my staff, I always, as a military leader, I always tell people let's find, and, it, and it, every, everything may seem impossible, 
but it's only impossible until we decide it is possible. Meaning let's figure out a way. Everything is figure outable and we will figure out a way. And that is where that spark of like, whoa, like I'm going to let one person who doesn't like what my rapport says about my grades, tell me what I can do. And, and, and that's the thing I really stress to a lot of people today is that if you let that one jerk or that one person cause you an emotional disturbance, you're not going to be successful. You're not going to be able to achieve any of those things you ever wanted. And why would you allow, especially a person who's a stranger, have so much control, have so much influence over your life? Mm. That seems like you're giving away a lot of power. So you had a great quote in that section of the book. Sometimes the hardest things to do are really for the best. I really love that, by the way. I want to peel the onion a little bit with regards to what you had just said, that you you kind of understood why she said it, because your grades weren't the best at that time. Uh-uh. And I, I, if you don't mind peeling that onion a little bit, because I think a lot of people can experience that. And sometimes they'll make the decision to follow that kind of advice and not pursue what they really wanted in the first place. So why were your grades not where you wanted them or where where she wanted them? And then what did you do to get them to the point where you were able to become the successful person you are today? So at the time, my grades were barely a 3.0. And 3.0 is fine, but to get into dental school, you need to have like 3.7, 3.8, 4.0. And one of the reasons is I went to a small private Catholic college. When I tell you I walk in the class and they tell you not even God gets an A, they sincerely meant it. So, or they would only do a sliding grading scale where they'd only, if, there, if you had a 94 and two other people had a 95 and 96, they got the A and you got the B. So just right out of the gates, you're, you're walking an uphill battle. You just didn't even know you were walking up because comparing that to me, to someone else going to a college where they didn't have that, they're already, they're already going to look better on paper. So what I did was I thought, okay, what are the things that dental schools are looking for? And okay, if I need to rock these nine courses, science, biology, physics, biochemistry, I need to set myself up for success. So I took summer school every summer and retook those classes where I could focus 100% on organic chemistry or general chemistry. And then instead of taking biochemistry from a professor that was like feared probably more than any other human being, I took it at UC Berkeley. And, you know, some people may say, well, that's kind of cheating. I'm like, is it cheating? Because I'm still taking it at critical school. I'm just being smart about where I can be more successful. And the other thing that I also did is I changed my major to communications because let's be honest, no patient is ever going to ask me, gosh, Dr. Devin, what did you get on your dental emissions test? What did you get in uh, high algebra or calculus? They want to know how I make them fill the chair. How can I explain things? How can I be relatable? How can I be thought provoking and engaging and make them feel that they matter more than anything else or the chaos that is going behind me or outside that door once I open it? And to me, that was something I really wanted to embody and bring to dental schools because so often, let's be honest, they could have the straight A student, the perfect DAT score, but how often are they going to have that one person that walks in that makes them feel, wow, this girl's not afraid to work. She's a team player. She's not going to walk in with an attitude that she knows it all. She is ready to truly embrace what it means to be part of our dental school. And she's going to be the alumni that's going to make our school shine. And that is what I end up doing is I did a thesis called Tell, Show, Do, Effective Communication Strategies Dentists Use in Public Health Care. 
And that is what I carried to each of my dental school interviews. And I was waitlisted just for your audience. So I did not get in a single dental school right away. I was on the waitlist for two dental schools. And that's the other thing is you, when you apply to graduate level doctor programs, yes, you need to have the ones where you reach for the stars, but you also need to be smart. You no, know, Nevada, I was a state resident. Uh, Creighton was a private university. So these were things that I looked at and uh, ultimately, yeah, I got into UNLV right before I graduated from, uh, from college. Hmm. How did your parents react? Oh my gosh. They were so thrilled. My dad was so excited to know that I was going to go to dental school and then even more excited when I joined the Navy. He is not so happy that I didn't decide to take over his private practice and then he sold it. He was dreaming that's what I would do. But I just, um, I had other ideas of what my future wanted to look like and uh, they're grateful. They're very, very happy where I'm at today and they're they're very proud. I just, I wish I got to see more often in case your audience doesn't know, Japan is still very much in lockdown and quarantine. So um, tourism now is allowed here. Every time I go, I have to take a COVID test. I have to wear a mask everywhere. So until the country opens, um, hopefully I get to share this and show it to them soon, sooner than later. You've been in two countries during COVID. Uh, well, one's ground zero, Italy. Yes, I'm, Italy. I'm, yes, Italy. And, uh, and then Japan. What, what was your life like when, when COVID first hit, you were in Italy and then you went to Japan, right? What was yes. that like? I remembered waking up like it was a normal day. And then as the day progressed and the prime minister made his announcement that the entire country of Italy was going to be quarantined, it was almost like a bomb went off, but you never, you never heard it. You never saw it. There was, it was just like this silence invisible enemy that just was attacking you and you just didn't know from where and it was so eerie to be in a place of so much life and noise and celebration to have complete dead silence so i went from i i live off base i lived in catania italy it's on the island of uh sicily or sicilia if your um, listeners are sicilian or italian and i recall walking outside and like the only thing I would ever hear would be sirens or helicopters. And I say walk, I only was able to do a couple of times where they stop people from walking to the grocery store because they realize that was what people are doing just to get outside to driving and getting pulled over and feeling like I was trapped in time, like going to the local grocery store, which would take me 10 minutes to get in and out where it was like a, an hour and a half, two hour long you know, evolution of standing outside, waiting to be allowed to go in, going in, seeing the shelves empty and feeling like the rest of the world hadn't caught up yet. And then of course, obviously it hit the United States um, the way it did. And being there, it was just, it was just so sad because to me, um, Italians thrive off human connection. They thrive off that energy. And to know that, um, that someone just muscled them and squashed them. It was just, it was really, really painful to watch. It was really, really painful. And I just, I, I was really grateful to have a job that allowed me even to go to the work a couple days a week. Hmm. And then when you were, excuse me, in Japan, what was like there and what is it like now? Um, so when I left Italy, it was in September of 2020. And then when I arrived into Japan in October, 2020, it felt like a different world. So, you know, the Italians, they're very much Babene. You know, they, they follow the rules initially, but obviously they get a little bit more lax where the Japanese, it's very black and white. I get off the airplane. I'm treated like an alien. 
I'm thrown a set of hotel keys, like from like 10 feet away. I'm locked into a hotel room for two weeks. I just, I would have my sponsor, who's the person who, you know, gets you settled in your place, deliver food every, you know, once or twice a week. It was just a different culture mindset. I, I just couldn't believe because in Italy, I was there when we had people arrive and they were allowed to walk outside and go do their laundry. They just couldn't go see other people. And it was just such a different, different mindset. And it was hard. It was hard as a leader watching my people not be allowed to leave the country to go home. So the only way my people were actually getting back and even myself when I left was on a military rotator into the country. Because the thing was that the moment you landed down in Japan, you had a quarantine for two weeks. And Tokyo, which is our um, largest city, major city, is a 12-hour drive from my base. I'm closer to Hiroshima. So just to put things in perspective, we could only get in by a military plane. And then, of course, we had to have everything well-documented. And for the first year, it was really hard because I could see the rest of the world opening up and we just weren't. And just to watch my people not be able to allow to go home for or be delayed and go through just an emotional roller coaster if a, a family member passed away or something happened where they need to go home and just know they couldn't get home right away. It was just... It was really hard. And I made sure leadership knew. I made sure every general command master chief or people knew. And again, these are my views and not the views of the Department of Defense, because what was hard is I was on an air base. I'm on, I'm on the Marine Corps Air Base. So we actually have planes right here. And to know we were so close and not be able to do it for a while was really, really, really hard. And it has gotten better. September, October, fall of 21, things have started to open. And we are now allowed to travel within the country. So now present day, we're talking you know, July of 2022, you know, Japan. Now um, you only have to get a COVID test right before you leave your departing country before you enter Japan. You don't have to take another COVID test that recently changed. Um, and you just show your vaccination card. You wear a mask on the airplane. We have to wear a mask pretty much wherever we go off base, except outside. Now, if you're outside at Disneyland park, cause we do have a Tokyo Disneyland, then yes, they want you to wear a mask because you run a lot of people, but if you're engaged in cardio, if you're eating, if you are like me, just taking my trash out, walking down the street, I don't have to wear a mask outside. But the minute I stepped indoors outside the country, uh, outside of my military base, I have to wear a mask. And then mm -hmm. on my base, we wear a mask in my dental clinic. So it is, um, it is challenging, especially since we're in Southeast Asia and we've got humidity here, but um, that's the Japanese. And, and again, they are allowing tours to come here, but there's certain tour groups. And I think with a special visa, if I have like, I have a friend who just had a baby, so she was able to get her mom in, but it's, it's not without a lot of paperwork, a lot of back and forth. So we are not open to tourism. We are not open to the country, open for other people to visit quite yet that do not have um, military stationed here, or they have citizenship here. You just made me think of a question that I need to ask now. And I, and I hope I asked this correctly. So American woman, Blonde. Are you fairly tall? I'm five foot three, but that's actually tall for Japan. Okay. So I love that for Japan. So you've you've been in a number of different countries with cultures are different. Well, cultures can be different from when you were in San Diego to San Antonio and Reno, of course. But you've been in Japan, Italy, in Iraq. Mm -hmm. In your profession, are there some cultural hurdles that you had to get over being a female doctor in maybe particular Iraq? I'm going to start with that. Were there some challenges that you had to address 
in those cultures? Yes. And that is such a beautiful question to ask because I don't feel as Americans, we think about that because we are for the most part, very welcome and very opening. And when I was in Iraq, I was treated like a second-class citizen. I not by other American soldiers, but by Iraqis. So my one of my first patient was an Iraqi security force colonel. He thought I was someone's 12-year-old daughter and he wouldn't want to treat me. And I told the translator that my boss was a female. So either we took care of him or he could leave. And so he opened his mouth and let me know which tooth needed it and we took care of it. And another time that was fascinating to me where I experienced it, but they started to be a little bit more open was when out when I went outside the wire, went outside my base, I went to an Iraqi camp and they do not in, in the Iraqi culture, women will take care of women and children and men treat men. Very rare. Would you see a female doctor treat a male? And the reason they made an exception when I was there was that they realized that the, um, the skills and my education and my experience would be far superior than any of their local providers that they had there. So they were much more open. And I shouldn't say everyone felt that way, but that is a general thing I was told to expect. I had to be covered. I also needed to have someone with me at all times, just because just the safety, um, me smiling, I'm, I'm very cheerful, very outgoing, very positive. And they watch Western movies and they take that as a sign of flirtation, even though I just think I'm being very polite and respectful and professional introducing myself. And so that was something that I really kind of had to reel things back and also be very cognizant of my surroundings, have very good situational awareness of where I was and what I was doing. And so I, um, that was an area, that was an area that I had to come to in Italy. It was more just learning how to be, um, the culture there was learning some of the Italian. Um, one thing I learned, told people once I learned how to say le capisce inglese, which means, do you understand English? I saw people take me a little more seriously. And that's the thing is that us Americans, I, we expect everyone to speak English no matter where we go, even though we know we shouldn't expect it. I know it's just a common thing in our culture. I see it all the time. And I have learned in both Japan and Italy, the moment you learn some of the language, even if you completely butcher it, it's no different than when someone tries to speak English to us and we know it's not their first language. We're going to be more accommodating. We're going to be more understanding. And in Italy, I had to slow down. I had to learn how to take my time. They're not so fast paced. They're not so rushed. And it wasn't that I didn't feel accepted per se, but what was fascinating to me was that women in the military, not so much as an orthodontist or a provider, were not accepted in Italy until the year 2000. Oh, wow. That was what was fascinating to me and meeting other women. And the fact that they, I remembered my commanding officer at the time loved her. She is a pharmacist by trade, but she was in charge of our hospital and on, on Sicily. And she would talk about how her husband, he ran a restaurant, but he stopped to follow her career. Every woman in that room and a man came up to her and said that you would never find that in our country. Like you, that is such a rare thing. Like your husband must love you so much because my husband could never do that. It's, it's really, it was a really, really fascinating. So mm. Um, and then in Japan, they've been respectful. Yesterday, I spoke Jap some Japanese to a, a Japanese local providers who were visiting, and they were so grateful with bowing and holding a business card. Those are the big things. So it's learning. I never felt disrespected, but I just felt, um, I, I think they're not expecting a blonde hair, blue eyed woman who looks like Elsa that their kids watch on Frozen to say, oh, konnichiwa, genki desu ka, watashi wa karinsan. Like, 
Good morning. How are you? My name is Corinne. It, it, it's always funny when it catches people off guard. <laughs> so I'm going to take you back to something you just said. I'm aware of it, but a lot of people might not be if they haven't had the the fortune and opportunity to work with uh, people from Japan that would have a business card. When you said, and I even watched how you had your hands. Americans have a tendency to look at a business card and just put it away right away. That's not what happens in Japan. So walk through that so people kind of get a picture of, of what it's like. So I'll, I'll give you an example of what happened to me yesterday. We had some local Japanese providers who were coming on our base in our dental clinic, and they hand me their card. And as soon as someone hands you a card, you're standing up and you're holding that card in both of your hands. And you're holding in your hands for the entire conversation. That card doesn't go anywhere unless maybe you put it in one hand to shake someone's hand. But that's not something you really do in Japan. You don't really shake people's hands. For them, it's holding that card because honor, respect, patience, being fully present in the moment is so paramount in their culture. So if you took their card and put it right away, that is saying that you're disrespecting them. They're not that important. So you hold that card very, very, um, for the entire conversation. And then, and they will do the same thing with you. And then as soon as you're done with the conversation, you bow and then you put the card away. So you might be holding the card for a good, you know, five, 10 minutes. Um, but that's just something that's, it's, it's really, um, it's so paramount in their culture. And I, and I can't stress that, um, because it catches people off guard. They're not used to it. Again, it's not, it's just not someone you're, that you commonly see in other cultures. Right. Right. No, I remember the first time I had the opportunity to be in a business discussion with somebody from Japan. Fortunately for me, someone had briefed me before I met the person, so I wouldn't embarrass myself, but more importantly, <laughs> insult and embarrass uh, that person. Prior to your experiences and living in Japan, were you a punctual person and when most of the people that you associate with, were they people that if they have an appointment at two o'clock, they're at two o'clock, they're not there at 202, they're there at two o'clock or even, five, you know, 155. Are you one of those kind of people? I was raised in a military family, Mike. So to be early is to be on time, according to my father. So yes, I, um, I was definitely, definitely very punctual. And it's such a culture opposite from Italy, where especially in Sicily, they would run 15 to like, 30 minutes late. So usually we worked with the local public affairs officer who was Sicilian. Love Dr. Albert Ulanetta. He's amazing. He would always tell me and other leaders, okay, we're going to get here around this time. And I know the event says 10, but we're getting there at 1030. So you're only waiting 10 minutes. Like, so it's, but yes, Japan is very much on time. In fact, um, I think where I struggle is that sometimes they want me there even 10 or 15 minutes early, like maybe at the end of my workday. So I'm trying to, um, accommodate their even like extra, extra um, time. And the other thing is they're very big about scheduling and appointments and, and you like live and die by that appointment. And if you don't make it, it's a lot of apologizing and gifting. Like they call it goman asai gifts. Goman asai means I'm sorry in Japanese. And so, um, I, I missed, missed calendar, a date, an appointment with, um, one of the small businesses off base, this girl I see. And, I had changed it, but she forgot to change her schedule. And I felt bad, even though it was just a snafu of miscommunication, I brought her a gift. And again, gifts are very small in Japan. Like it could be like a small box of chocolates. It could be like 
a fun pen from where you went. So, I mean, we're not talking extravagant gifts and for them, anything I can buy on my base that they can't get off base, like Godiva chocolates that are much cheaper on our base island in Japan, like something like that, like a little small mm. box or something wrapped like that with just, that's perfect. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's a punctual society trains. They are even apologizing to if trains are late. Like I've never been a public transportation. Like they're apologizing profusely to you. So here's, by the way, here are these questions I keep thinking about. I got to make sure I ask about pageants. I got to make sure I ask about what you're going to do five years from now. I got to make sure I have all these questions, but I have to ask this one first. Sure. That period of time from 2007, when you graduated and then 2012, you graduated as an orthodontist. What was that load like, that five-year period of time with all of that stuff on your shoulders? What was life like for you at that time? A roller coaster ride. <laughs> Sometimes I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hose, I would tell you. But, you know, some, I looked at pageantry as, at pageantry as, as my break, my retrieval. Um, I'm not married. I don't have kids. So maybe, you know, for someone who is married or has children, maybe it's going to their son's soccer game. For me, it was competing in pageants or supporting my friends and being, and being with them and having an outlet, a healthy outlet that I could go to. So, um, if your audience doesn't know, I got into pageantry as a complete dare from some jerk in my dental school who told me I couldn't do it. And then somehow <laughs> I got sucked in. Um, and I met a bunch of amazing women that I still love and adore and so grateful because they've made me the woman I am. And they're there to help me and pick me up whenever I, I, I need help. But yeah, it's uh, gosh, 2007. So that's when I won Miss Nevada. I competed in Texas, won Texas, which tech competing in Texas, y'all like that is like right next to godliness and football pageantry. Oh, they, they take on a whole another level. Um, and then, you know, but I also met some of the best, best people and it really set me up for success. Uh, the women in pageantry helped me finish my dissertation in pageantry, which a mentor of mine, Dr. Bowman, he keeps bugging me. We need to publish an article about what you did with pageant when we don't see that in, in orthodontic journals. And I, um, I'm just so grateful. I'm actually getting ready to do a competition uh, this fall. I'll find out today if I made the top 20 for a military competition. And then if, if not, I have another, uh, another system that I've kept my eye on. It's just coordinating with being life overseas and, and making sure it doesn't impact uh, my day-to-day job too much. So in, in a, a passion, I don't know a lot about them, despite the fact that two sisters that were involved so many, many years ago. So Here's kind of my knowledge is that it has uh, an educational piece, kind of an arts and culture piece, a physicality piece. I, I'm going to say stage presence piece, and that's probably not the right term. No, that was that was actually the correct term. It is. So yeah. what 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 are all the components, and then how are you scored on them? So and a three part question, and yeah. if a person has a weakness in one of them. Is there a way to take a strength and have that shine so well that it kind of the, the weakness might not be that big a deal? If if yeah. that question made sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. So um the components you'll see in a lot of pageants is you'll see interview, uh swimsuit or fitness, uh evening gown, and on stage question. Some of the other systems, you may see talent, you may see social media presence, which is starting to come up more as, as a thing in pageantry or video. And as far as scoring goes, it really varies by the system. Some systems will judge you on your headshot. Some systems won't. So it really varies across the board. 
typically you see interview weighing a little bit higher, but it's done behind the scenes. It's not done in front of an audience. And the interview is asking, you know, you know, what do you bring, who you are, what do you know about the system? Like, why are you a good fit to be, you know, to work for us, you know, hold this title, hold this job. And then with swimsuit, a lot of that is fitness. It's physical fitness. Now people are like, oh, you got to be, you know, five foot 10 and weigh 110 pounds. No, I've seen girls who are much larger, but they know their body. They have that confidence. So the, they're the person that you see where you can take their, your eyes off of them on stage because they just, ha- their energy is so effervescent in the way they walk and carry themselves. And then an evening gown, typically the evening gown is something to show elegance, grace, poise, your ability just to be proud in who you are. And, you know, again, with all these, you, you really do want to highlight your strength. So me being five foot three, I typically wear a very, I wear a long gown that doesn't do any cuts because it makes me look taller on stage. Um, you know, pick a color or something that's complimentary to your skin. So it's something where you feel like you are a million dollars on stage. And I have the same dress I've competed since 2012. So 10 years, because I love that dress. That is what I have to work harder than anything to fit into. But I just feel amazing. And anyone who sees it on me, they can tell that they see me not to see the dress. And then lastly, on stage question, you know, these can vary from current events, political to, you know, why you want to compete. Um, I've been asked how I describe mother nature to someone who's blind. I, I just across the board and um, it's ability for you to think on your feet. It's ability to, for you to kind of, hold your confidence, not let things get underneath your skin, but answer in a way where it's like, wow, this person really thought about their answer. And I can see who they are, who their values are through that answer. Now, like I said, the scoring is going to vary throughout whichever system you go to. So sometimes I tell people when you're trying to see which system do see who some of the winners are, see, you know, there are some pageants out there I would love to do, but I don't, I am not Latina. I wish I was. I love, I love everything about the Latina culture, but I am just not. So that is not going to be a good system for me. Some systems have a height requirement. Others require a certain look. And, you know, I don't believe you should change who you are. What I do believe is, is using coaches. So there's a lot of different coaches out there. And I mentioned several in my book that I really stand by because just like any industry, there's good people and not so good people. And these are people who love what they do. They're not, there's so much more about their business of being a coach. And for me, having someone who's not afraid to put a mirror in front of my my face and make me better, whether it's interview, whether it's at the gym, whether it's my ability to answer tough questions quickly and, and, but do so with confidence and, and with an edge that really stands apart to me. Those are great skills to have outside of pageantry. Hi, I'm in the military. You can't tell me there's on a border meeting. I go into where there's confrontation, where there's conflict, where there's people who've got, you know, different agendas that I shouldn't have those skills for. And that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I love doing pageantry. So I hope that answers your question, your three-part question. Oh, it does. And thank you for the information you provided, but in particular, when you said, I think it was pick a color that makes you feel good. You know, the importance of how we feel is so important when it comes to most of the things we do in our life. Uh, It's, and we set that pace, right? We decide how we're going to feel. We decide before our feet hit the floor in the morning, how we're going to go about the day and how, how we feel. So thank you for mentioning that. How many pageants have you been in? 
Gosh, it's probably, I'm just going to guess right now, but probably a dozen. Um, I've, I've won a lot. I've been very, very successful, but I will tell you, I've, there's probably more that I haven't won and, but I learned a lot along the way. And I think that's the difference is like with any sort of competition. And there's also some, some, excuse me, some subjectivity with pageant, meaning another day, another winner, another judge. Um, when I competed for Miss Earth, the first time I competed, I lost by one point. I was super excited. My friend, Kristen Chucky, who won that year, she was amazing. She brought her a game. Like I, like, I think the judges were like, we've never seen a more excited first runner up on stage, but because I know I, I brought it, I did everything I could. And I felt confident knowing that I, I brought it in the following year. I won. So I, I always tell people like, you know, have your why be more than just like winning the game or winning the crown, you know, the person that you become along the way is going to be more important. And there's a lot of research with this, with hitting goals, you hitting your little markers on the way, the more of you actually achieving your goal. And yes, still goals are important, but the progress of me, the person you become, the way you walk, the way, I mean, it's just going to, it's just going to be such a snowball effect in every aspect of your life. And I, I couldn't encourage that more with, with setting goals and going after things, whether it's a pageant or a bodybuilding competition or running a marathon. Mm. So I'm going to read another one of your quotes and then I'm going to start asking you uh, a couple of questions about the book. And again, the sure. book is Commander to Crown Lessons Learned as a Naval Commander and Beauty Queen. Life is beautiful, messy, and always veering off from the plan. I thought that was just great. So accurate, so spot on. And some things you just can't control and get used to it. So I think there's 13 chapters in the book. I loved every one of them. Yes, there's 13 chapters. And forging ahead like a queen. I can't even read my own writing. Anyway, you have this checklist and there are 13 items on the checklist. I won't go through all of them, but I want to address one that really resonated with me. They all did, but this one really did. Number five, magnify your mantras. And then you gave some examples. And I, can I, I'm just going to Yeah, go for it. Please, 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 please do. Dream more, complain less. Boy, could we use a lot of that right now, by the way. Here's another one we could use a lot of right now. Listen more, talk less. Love more, argue less. Hope more, fear less. Relax more, worry less. Believe more, doubt less. Every one of those, so simple, so straightforward, all of them important. And I'm going to say something. I'm going to ask you about how you came up with them. Those are the kind of mantras. One of my favorite is I am, I can, I will. I, or I am, I can, I do. I wake up in the morning before my feet hit the floor. First of, all, I, first of all, I prayed. But before my feet hit the floor in the morning, I'm thinking about the positive things I want to accomplish. I learned that from a person that... It, so many times in his life before he started doing the opposite, before his feet hit the floor in the morning, he was worried about the stuff that he was going to have to confront. Mm 
and the challenges. And that just set the tenor for how his day was typically going to go, mm-hmm. which was always too much stress when, you, when you're dealing with the negative things, even though they're there. If you haven't had some kind of frame of mind where you're positive getting before your feet at the floor, it makes it more difficult for you, right? How did you come up with these? And do you have more? Um, I do. I, um, I keep things on my phone. So when I was traveling a lot, when I was stationed in Europe, I would see things or hear things and I would write them down. I would keep a note on my phone. I note a diary on my computer. That's when I started writing this book was during the pandemic, but I started compiling these things. And I realized that when things are simple, they're repeatable, they're easy to remember, they're easy to do. It doesn't feel overwhelming. And being in Europe and I'm my, my best friend, I'm the godmother to her children. I have another, another family that's overseas. I'm godmother to their children as well you start realizing that life is meant to be lived. And when life is meant to be lived, it makes you kind of shift your mindset of like, why am I worried about the what is, why am I worried about this? And it's robbing you of the present. It's robbing you of your ability to really enjoy and be grateful for those things. Because what I learned is that we all want to be around people that make us feel good. We all want to be around people who they feel like they get us, they validate us. And when you listen to understand and not listen, just to be simply listening to someone, you start gleaming those little things. And so for me, I, I really hope to do another tour in Italy because it, it forced me to hit the pause button in so many areas of my life. And I just, um, for me, that's where I got a lot of my, my inspiration is just from, and being in Europe, when you travel to other countries, the culture is so different that you, you see things and you pick up on things. And even though you may not fully understand it, it just, it kind of makes you just pause and think about like, wow, I, I never thought of it from that way. Like, and, and just getting off that hamster wheel. Hmm. Before I forget the number one reason you wrote the book and are you fulfilling the number one reason? The, one of the reasons I, well, I, I never thought about my number one reason. I have many reasons, but the reason that came to my head that I'll share is that I've always wanted to publish something and I just didn't know what, I just assumed it had to be an orthodontic article and how that reason evolved to me writing this book was that during the pandemic and prior to the pandemic, I was on several other podcasts with people that I really admired, respect and adored. And they say, you have to write a book. Her story is so life-changing. Like you have no idea how much your story could change people. You could be the person that could, that could make someone say yes to something they would, they would not immediately shy away. And just having so many people tell me that in person and tell me them podcast. And then just even meeting colleagues, I met other Naval officers who had done it, which I thought we couldn't do as active duty. I thought, okay, wow. Like this is something I could do. And that's really what lit the fire to me writing this book. And and it became honestly a place, a refuge for me when I felt like my world was just turned upside down being in Italy. Hmm. You graduated as a dentist 2007 as an orthodontist with a master's in biology, by the way, 2012. How much has technology, for example, Visalign, how much has technology changed your profession in those 10 years in terms of graduating in 2012? How much has it changed? 
Uh, dramatically. I, I, I'll be honest in the military. There's some things I just don't get access to do. Like we don't get to really do Invisalign, clear liner treatment on unorthodox, but I have to really say, I, I commend my colleagues for being so innovative. So one of the big things with companies like Invisalign or clear liners is you have to send, send things off to them. Well, now people have the ability to print clear liners in their office. They're starting to do in my residency program. So, um, now there's another thing with Lightforce where this guy is printing out his own brackets and customizing things. And so I really admire the ingenuity and the innovation. Um, there's another podcast. His name is Chris Chetta, and he's amazing. Adore him. Love him. Great speaker. And he brings all of these inventors and all these people who may see, you know, corporate business or other people kind of put their foot in our profession. And, you know, for the most part, they're great. They, they help us have our conferences. They help us have speakers. But sometimes um, when you kind of feel like you're, you have someone who's kind of having a monopoly over the market and there's not really fair market competition to have someone come in and step in and step up really says a lot. I think the other thing you're seeing a lot of is, is do it yourself um, products that people were doing where, you know, personally, I would be very wary of doing it yourself. I always think it, there's something to be said. I, I always tell people I wouldn't group on your face. You know, you group on a bad restaurant. You know, maybe you have food poisoning. Maybe you're throwing up the next day. You do that to your teeth. Uh, you know, that, that affects you for the rest of your life. So I, um, I'd say one of the great things about technology is I feel so connected to so many people now that I never felt connected before through social media and groups. So we see each other in person. We already feel like we know each other. We feel like we were kindred spirits. And now we actually get to hug each other in person. We just had our first live conference last month. So I'm just still off the high and watching the archives actually this morning up to our, our, uh, your podcast show. And, but the thing that doesn't change is it's still a business about people. It's still about making people happy. And it's still about, um, collaboration over competition. It's still about looking out for each other. And that is something I feel really blessed to have in the military. I, there is not, a day that goes by that I'm not speaking to another colleague in my community, thanking them, asking them questions, being there for them, trying to be a resource. And I always tell people, you know, one of my strengths is I'm really great at networking. I'm really good at like, Hey, if I don't know the answer, I'm going to find out. And once I find out, I'm going to share it with the world. And, um, and that is something that I really do appreciate that technology has really elevated and really been a game changer for my profession. Corinne, you've uh, had the opportunity to speak to a number of groups. And if I recall in the book, maybe even one that was specifically young girls about the importance of STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, math for people that don't follow that. And there is a shortage in some of those professions, whether it's engineering, architecture, uh, dentistry, orthodontia, uh, in terms of female participants. If, if you had a magic wand, you could wave over the heads of, I'm going to say young girls, because that, mm -hmm. that's kind of when we have to hit them with the importance of this. And you wanted them to know the importance of the components of a STEM education and one that, what that could potentially do for them in the, for their future. What's the one thing you'd want them to know about pursuing that? That the idea that you would be locked into being a doctor, a engineer, an astronaut, uh, a scientist is so far from the truth. 
the beauty of that education, it gives you a foundation. It opens up all of these doorways to careers that you may have never thought of or dream of. But in 10 years from now, you'll be so grateful that you at least took those courses to know that you've already got a foot in. And that's what I would tell them. And that was something that I really enjoyed doing when, when we did it on my last tour in Japan of having them go around. They met pilots. They came to our hospital. They worked with different groups. And I loved it where they're like, I didn't know this is what I could get from me to learn about the periodic table of elements. I didn't know about this. And that's the thing is that it opens up to them a world that they never even knew existed. Mm. So you took your oath in 2007, which means you have 15 years in. And thinking back to your dad, when he got 20, he had the opportunity, you could make this decision um, to retire from the military and you have 50% uh, pension. I don't know if that's still the same, but I'm sure it's something similar. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to ask you a different magic wand question. Okay. And everybody that just heard that, now you kind of figure out why I'm going to ask this question. Now you're going to wave a magic wand over the heads of young girls, probably in middle school, junior high. And some of them should be considering a career path in one of the branches of the military as well. What's the one thing you'd want them to know based on your experience? Know your why. Know your why, why you're joining the military. Is it to get your education paid for? Is it to be a stepping stone to something else? One of the things I stress to all of the people that I mentor and give career advice to is know your why. If their military was your way of getting out of a situation or getting out of an environment where you know you were not being successful, that's great. But as soon as you come in, I want to know what are the three things you want to accomplish. If your why is that you want three square meals a day, you want to be able to be part of something bigger self, join the military. And whether it's Army, Air Force, or Navy, I mean, they're all great. They all have their their part in it. So for me, um, I think I do a lot of recruiting for the scholarship programs. I think a lot of people are surprised that I wear scrubs 99% of the time and, you know, workout clothes. And I wear my uniform maybe once a week. And they had no idea that the military could do that. So I one thing I educate people is, There is hardly a single job that you know exists where we don't have a position in the military. Now, I can't guarantee you're going to like the branch it's in, but I can tell you (laughs) every single job. I I heard from an epidemiologist yesterday who's in the Navy. I have a friend who's a veterinarian in the Army. So they do exist. And if you want to have a great way to open up your career and to get your foot in the door, the military is a great way to do it. Corinne, what are the best ways for people to follow you? Uh, connect with you in terms of learning more about you, where where would you want people to go? So they can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Corinne Devin. That's D-R-C-O-R-I-N-N-E-D-E-V-I-N. They can also find me on YouTube. I have my own YouTube channel. It's not very active. I will be honest. Um, My Instagram is a bit more active as well as my Facebook, which is also Dr. Corinne Devin. And I'm also on LinkedIn as as, uh, Corinne Devin. So any of those ways you can find me. Also, I will make sure to send you, Mike, all the links. And in two weeks, I will be releasing the paperback version of my book. So if some of you listeners out there are like me, where you really like the smell, the holding of a book, don't worry, I've got you. 
Uh, it's going to be coming out on Amazon and I'll make sure to send all the information to Mike on the podcast so he can share it in the show notes. And, and thank you so much again for having me, Mike. It's been truly a breath of fresh air to speak to someone who has um, such an impressive history. And I feel like we've got several ties that we're connected with family and pageantry or Reno. So I'm really excited mm -hmm. to see what the future holds. I'll have all of that information on mikeseminary.com, by the way. So I open this by saying, well, how do I, what's the title? Should it be Dr. Corinne? Should it be Commander Corinne? Should it be uh, Miss United States, Miss Galaxy? I'm going to go with my friend, Corinne Devon. Perfect. Corinne, thank you so much for joining me. You have just been delightful, inspirational. I can see why you also do keynotes and motivational speaking. You're really, a, you're just really special. And again, thank you for your service. God bless you. I'm, I'm so appreciative that you came on. It's my pleasure. Have a great rest of your day. Take good care.